0: Um, umgoblue.com by fans for fans since 1999 hello welcome to this edition of the um, umgoblue.com podcast this is phil callahan and today i have special guest greg dooley from mvictors.com mvictors.com the uh i like to say the definitive place for history and culture of michigan athletics on the internet greg is a good friend and uh I have him here today to talk about the Little Brown Jug, one of the uh, great trophies, great rivalry games that that Michigan has. Of course, they uh, fight the Minnesota Gophers for it. So, uh, Greg, tell us about the origin of, of this storied rivalry.
1: I, I will tell you about it, and I will add a personal note. Um, Phil and I sit right right next to each other, basically in the press box, typically. So I miss our catch-ups that we would have had this time last year, Phil. So it's great to hear from you. Um, but to get started, yeah. So, so you want me to talk about some of the early history and absolutely. Jug
0: or... well, well, where did the where did the jug come from, Greg? How sure. Did, what what is its origin story?
1: Sure. So so the jug. So so let's let's talk about the history, right? So Minnesota was one of the founding members of the Big Ten. Um you know, the talk started in eighteen ninety-five. Most people attribute eighteen ninety-six, the founding of the Big Ten, six schools, two of them were Michigan and Minnesota. And if you look at what was traditionally called the West, and you know, readers of, of your site are of course um familiar with that term, what it meant, you know, is these Midwestern teams. Those were two of the powerhouses at the time. And you know, we were getting along since the, the founding of the Big Ten, and, and that was one of the bigger games when we played each other. And things really came to a head in 1903. And this is a couple years after Fielding H. Yost arrived in 1901. And Michigan, for his part, hadn't lost a game yet. Um, in fact, in 1901, no one scored a point against Michigan at all, right? We played the first Rose Bowl, yada, yada, yada. So fast forward to October, 1903. We have Minnesota on the schedule, a trip to Minneapolis, and they happen to be undefeated um, and unscored upon that year, the same as Michigan. So this is billed as a game of the century of sorts. Okay. So that's the backdrop, right, Phil, of how we how we got here. And then if you'd like, I can kind of tell you how the jug comes to play.
0: Well, you know, Greg, it's interesting because I think a lot of current fans don't realize that Minnesota really was, you know, has had stretches of being a great power, right? And, you know, much like uh, Michigan and Ohio State, if you go back uh, to the the primordial ooze of the Big Ten, Minnesota was a power, as you said. So, what happened in that in that first game i mean or that 1903 game that you're talking about i mean yeah. that's really kind of the myth the mythology right that's where yeah
1: so so i can tell you i can tell you the myth let me tell you what really happened and then we can talk about some of the myths how about that absolutely
0: um, that's exactly what i want to talk about both yeah, sides so, right
1: so what really happened was this was absolutely like i described a huge game and what what happened before the game is like we probably normally did. Um, it wasn't to my in my opinion, anything special. We tr- we made a long trip to Minnesota and the team works out and they drank water on the sidelines. And Minnesota was actually known. Um, the area is actually known for its stone drugs. In fact, they're very collectible today. There's a place called Red Wing, Minnesota that makes these big jugs. I, I'm guessing Yoast or the trainers or, or the people knew from various athletic teams traveling to Minnesota, you could get these jugs. So they bought one. Um, they bought at least one, but they bought one, a five-gallon jug in Minnesota at a five-and-dime. I think it cost 30 cents, and they bought it before the game. Um, they're, you know, We'll get into the myth in a second. And what happened was we played the game. It was a brutally contested game. Michigan scored in the second half to go up six. Touchdowns were worth five back then. Got the extra point. Minnesota scores late in the game, and kicks the extra point. And the crowd, there's there's between what you read, there's a there's a few seconds left or there's a few minutes left, and the crowd storms the field and they call the game a six-six tie. Now, this is significant because this is the first time Yost has left the field, the mighty Yost, without a win, right? And Minnesota has effectively um, held serve at home, you know, in their minds, right? So so there's a huge, you know, it's a huge aftermath. Michigan leaves the jug behind in the locker room because why would you bother hauling a five-gallon ceramic, ceramic stoneware jug uh, on the train back to Ann Arbor, right? It was $0.30. Cents. And by the way, um, for for you guys who like to do the, well, how much is $0.30 cents back there? Who, You know, you, you could do all the math. Put it this way. Michigan made $13,000 in the game. Tickets were a couple bucks. This wasn't a huge expenditure, okay? So there was nothing precious about the jug. They left it behind. So and Greg, Michigan, are we saying yeah, that
0: he, are we saying even back then the athletic department and the football program was well funded? They, their expenses were good.
1: Uh, they were fine. In fact, thirteen thousand dollars was a good amount of money. It could have bought over forty thousand plus jugs, which we'll get into the myths in a second. But yeah, um, they did pretty well. I mean, Michigan Yost was very well paid. Um, he was paid as much as a um, a full time professor, and he only was paid to coach the team in the fall. He went home to Nashville, you know. After that, so they had a full-time trainer. This was a professional operation, you know, rel- relatively speaking for the day. Uh, but anyway, so we 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 leave the jug there. No other, it wasn't stolen, you know. We leave the jug in the locker room, like probably with some rip pads and rip, you know, this or that, because we didn't want to haul it back to Michigan. Get back um, on Monday. The custodian, a guy named Oscar, goes into the locker room, which is in the Minnesota Armory, and sees the jug there, and he said, hey, Michigan left their jug, and keep in mind, they're elated after this 6-6 tie, right? They, they tied Michigan, the Mighty Yost, and they said, hey, let's keep it as a souvenir, and they painted it, and they whitewashed it. It was actually kind of a pale-looking thing at the time. They, they painted it. There's pictures of it. Um, if you haven't seen them, I can send them to you, but... They wrote Michigan Jug on it and some other fun stuff with the score of the game. They put a big six next to Minnesota six, and the athletic director, again a guy named L.J. Doc, they called him Doc Cook, hung it in his office, and that is kind of how the trophy effectively was found and held. And again, we can get into the midst of that, and then and then we can talk about what happened in nineteen, what really happened in nineteen oh nine. Okay. So Greg, uh, let, me ask, like, let me ask yeah.
0: you a few questions. Okay. Sure. So back then, how was the time kept for the game? Was there an actual clock that the crowd could see or was it kept by the officials?
1: You know what? I don't know if they had a scoring clock back then. Um, I know they did like a, like a traditional wristwatch kind of a uh, hands kind of thing. Um, in, in at Ferry Field in the early days. I don't know if it was just kept by the officials. Okay. So, um, it, so does, listen, it does beg the question though, like was there two minutes or was it a few seconds? Cause it, you know, left.
0: So that's um, one of the questions I have now, listen, this is very sensitive to me because when I, when I coached intramurals at U of M, I got hosed out of a last second win because <laughs> the officials were allegedly keeping score on the field. So, uh, you know, I, 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 just, you know, w- when you said that, it brought me right back to that. Uh, so, so the other question—can
1: <laughs> I, can I add though? Let sure. me add, add this though: is that I don't have any evidence that Yoast, after the immediate part of the game, was overly concerned about how it ended. Um, they were there was some concern about, uh, the brutality, of how in the scrum you couldn't pass back then in the scrum how bad. Um, the, the Gopher players pounded at Michigan um, over the line. I think Yost would say so. Anyway, go ahead.
0: So here's the other question I have: is obviously there there was not a large line on the game, or there would have been, you know, cr- crying and moaning across the nation as, as betters were upset at the at the tie. So um,
1: there, there actually was a lot of money bet on this game. Oh, wow, um, interesting. Yeah, there actually was, and Michigan was a slight favorite. There, there are reports of nearly, at the time, uh, $75,000 bet on the game. That's what the report said. That's a lot of money back then.
0: Oh, that's a, that's a, oh, that's a lot of money right now for you or I, yeah. right? <laughs> so
1: I'm, I'm guessing, yeah, some people were probably frustrated, which I had never considered, Phil, and now I'm thinking about it. Wow, maybe there's a, an element there I need to write about.
0: <laughs> so here's the other question I have. Now, back then... Was it customary for the opposing team to provide water? Was Minnesota known for perhaps uh, providing some skunky water or some well water that the team didn't like? I mean, uh, or was this just commonplace that teams would bring their own supplies?
1: I believe, I believe that the concern now this gets into the myths, which we can touch on in a second, right? But the the my understanding is that the there was there wasn't concern about tainting the water like that that there would be devious means if the other team provided it um i think again it's kind of an occam's razor thing here it's yes that's a far-fetched theory but i think it was more out of convenience um we don't want to lug it from michigan it's our team it's our equipment And I don't know, it could be a thing where it wasn't the responsibility of the home team to provide water, right? Um, It was like, hey, bring your water, bring your equipment if you want water. It's not like today where we stress hydration and all that stuff, right? So it could have been more of, yeah, Yost likes to have water on the sideline, go get a jug. Um, I will say this. Now, what you had back then, though, which is kind of interesting – you know how you go to Mexico and it's like, watch out or don't eat lettuce or whatever, that kind of thing. You get the panzumas
0: Absolutely. That,
1: Yeah, that actually happened regionally more often than not. Our stomachs and our stomach bacteria and all that good stuff is way more accustomed to this, to North America and our region, and even in the Midwest than it was back then. That was a bigger concern. So you did have teams consider bringing their own water from like, say, Ann Arbor in this case. But the notion of lugging it to Minneapolis, that was more of a concern than say Minnesota doing something devious with it.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So, so again, it's all these things, you know, the game is so different now and uh, it's, it's interesting to hear uh, these are So, so what kind of, so that is the real story, but, but what? Kind yeah. Of myths well, have and, I, and up I did,
1: and I, I did leave out the the big thing. So they, they, let me just, just tie it off. so, so it's hanging above the athletic director's office. So why did they end up playing for it? Well, um, the, the, the simple fact is it was sitting in the athletic director's office for several years because they didn't play again until 1909, right? And there's a story behind that. Michigan was out of the Big Ten at the time, actually. We left the Big Ten. But we still we still arranged a game with Minnesota, who was still in the league. But anyway, we played. And, and my research said simply – the athletic director said, Look, wouldn't it be cool? He talked to the captain of Minnesota. Wouldn't it be cool if the winner took the jug home? You know, we will you affect let's make this a prize. So it's really Minnesota who who started this tradition. Of course, Michigan wins the 1909 game, takes it home, and we kind of collectively agree to play for it every year. That's the real origin of the story. Now, the legend goes, of course, we can get into all this, is that after the 1903 game, the 6-6 tie, Michigan leaves the jug behind, and Yost, for some reason, <laughs> wants it back. For hears that they have it, maybe he heard that Cook, they painted it and put it in his office, and maybe he was bitter about the game, the, the the way it was brutal and all that. And he writes, or there's a telegram or whatever, that he wants it back. There's really, really no evidence that Phil, that that took place. And that's what you'll hear like in the stories. You'll hear we got into the water a little bit, which I think I already got into that Michigan bought the jug for fear that Minnesota would taint the water. Again, there's, there's really no evidence that that happened and then you kind of apply logic to all this. Um, it doesn't really add up.
0: So what's interesting is that, you know, I think we have this pristine view of, uh, intercollegiate athletics back then. Right. And, you and I both know that the history back then, uh, all around, has some rather sordid tales, right? And what's interesting, oh what's interesting though, is that really, you know, you know, big time athletics gets a hit for you know being about marketing and hype, but really there was some hype and marketing going on even back then, right?
1: There was a ton of that. And in fact, um, I think if you, you can really point to any of the major issues, even down to COVID, um, to, to the the, the uh, flu right now, I, all these things really played out like vividly between this period and about the next 10, 20 years up until and past the, the Spanish flu um, names, images and likenesses that that whole debate, whether players should be paid. Um, whether players have the opportunity to make money on campus. In fact, a bunch of the players, the key players that played in the 1903 game, they did things like try to sell hurry up Yost, like fielding Yost cigars on campus. And um, they received loans with no intention of ever being paid back when they didn't have scholarships back then. And this continued for really the next few decades, really, in my mind, until Fritz Chrysler came, and a little bit after Fritz Chrysler came, so yeah, that this stuff was going on, going on very much back then. And by the way, the guy Yost's big rival at the time was was a guy named Amos Alonzo Stagg, whose name remains on the Big Ten championship trophy alone, right? Because it used to be the Paterno Stagg Trophy, or other way around, whatever. But now it's just the Stagg Trophy, right? And he, you win the Big Ten championship. Maybe Phil, one day, we'll find out what that trophy looks like man
0: it's but been it's, a, it's a, been a long time it's been a long time you know it was funny yeah. you, you mentioned the rose bowl and you said yada yada and i'm like hey i you know i have a shirt from the last rose bowl game that, that we went to and yeah you know back then we we went to the rose bowl you know at the end of the lloyd carr era just going to the rose bowl again was kind of a disappointment and i have to tell you that shirt is 15 years old and I've been promising my, my youngest daughter that, oh, honey, the next time that Michigan goes to the Rose Bowl, we'll go to, to Disneyland. And every season, when Michigan loses, she'll look at me and say, yeah, we're not going to Disneyland, are we? So uh, Yeah, you know, we- I,
1: I'm, I'm with you. I actually have a, a hat from that game that someone gave me. I wasn't at that one because of why would I? I had been to four already because it was old hat. <laughs> yep. maybe I should have gone and uh yeah I miss it bad I miss it bad but yeah that was that that 1901 season that was the first really the first bowl game of any kind um and uh it's kind of uh, one of those special Michigan firsts we have a lot of them um but that was a big one
0: well I, I we, think the I think the the first that we've we've revealed here is that you know there's a whole hidden investigation that we need to do about whether this game was fixed. Right. I mean, (laughs) yeah, I think that's, you know, I think
1: that's good. Was Spartan Bob there,
0: you know, Spartan Bob's relative, was he keeping time? Did he run the time off? What exactly was going on? Was there seconds left minutes left? And, you know, what was there the potential for the water to be spiked? I mean, we're learning all kinds of things (laughs) here, Greg.
1: There's a lot, you know, and, and it's funny because when you talk about the jug, um, that's a funny, uh, but, but there were quite a few Michigan fans who lost a lot of money in the game, um, no doubt. I, mean, I, think I think that's pretty interesting. So, not only did they have to pay for the trip, the long trip to Chicago, I mean, to Minneapolis, by the way, at the time, um, they also lost some money. And, you know, when, when you look at the jug, it's funny, but, you know, we talk about these myths, but keep in mind back then, there's no Netflix, you know, there's no inner. The sports writers at the time really tried to paint a like a fabulous version of, of the game, like calling it the game of the century. There were probably a few of those in, in all honesty, this was no doubt a big game and right. And the, and the jug doesn't, doesn't become a thing if this wasn't a huge game, but there was a lot of that. But then when you throw in something like a jug, like something that didn't happen on the field, that's when sports writers went nuts and tried to get quotes. And frankly, coaches people involved just made up stuff and that they just they just made up stuff to make it fun they said that the Minnesota coach Doc Williams whose namesake is Williams arena which is of course the basketball arena used to be hockey as well at Minnesota he just said yeah we stole it from them they th- that was their special jug and we stole it and and that that was just that was the real story for like a long time and so people kind of figured out that didn't happen it was just a jug right so there's lots of fun stuff with this so, so and, and it got stolen in the 30s in fact from yeah. so, from, so Greg, yeah.
0: before we get to that when did the myth emerge okay because you know definitely yeah. there was the real story and then you know the myths emerge and they start being repeated and you know if myths get repeated enough they they kind of take on a, a life of their own when did this myth begin to get repeated and amplified
1: sure well again it's not a real thing right this isn't how many yards willie heston ran for it's we're talking about a jug so it's it's inherently supposed to be uh fodder for a little bit of fun right and a little bit of lore but it i think it really started after that 1909 game when the sports writers asked about it and they said what's this and that's when with a gleam in his eye the coach from minnesota kind of started started giving and if you look in one of the michigan yearbooks they quote him about what he said about the jug and it was just all made up it was completely made up we stole it It, they had scores of the game on it not true we stole it not true they carried it with them from ann arbor not true um and you started i think i think these guys got egged on by sports writers so 1909 and then pieces you know people who were there right the equipment manager slowly they start to come out like in 1953 the 50th anniversary of that game kind of said no no this is what happened i bought it um you know i just bought the jug but but even he said you know yost told me because he feared they tain our water which is possible right but that seems like a really well-hatched plan before they, they left Ann Arbor that he's going to go buy a jug because he's worried about it. But even he said things. So honestly, I don't think this the whole story of the origins was straightened out. And I give myself some credit for that until 2009 when I really, really dug into all of the pieces of it, including when it was stolen, because that was all screwed up. Because I just don't think people cared, Phil. I mean, they, it was a fun tradition. Why would you bother? And even you gave me crap, you know, at one point going, Greg, I kind of like the myth. Leave it alone. And, I, and I'm fine with it, too. But well, it, I, I it really is, wanted to it know, is, know the truth. It is
0: interesting because I do want to know, like, I think there is a value to knowing the real story, okay? Yeah. But, like, for example, I do think some of the myths are fun, right? Like, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, there's the myth of the steam shovel, right? Sinking yeah. into the field at Michigan Stadium. And yeah. it is absurd, right? It is right. absolutely <laughs> absurd, okay? <laughs> and yet, it is hilarious to tell people, and you kind of, you know, rib each other. And and again, you know, a lot of times the myths are, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, I used to tell my daughters about, you know, uh, you know Santa Claus. As my older daughter, as my oldest daughter got older, she would kind of say, well, you know, Santa in air quotes. And I'd say, well, you know, when you stop believing in Santa, Santa stops believe stops bringing gifts. So, you know, (laughs) you you get to you get to make a choice. Right. Yeah.
1: No, that's great. You know, because she
0: was she was threatening to rat out rat us out to uh, to her younger sister. Right. So. So the thing about it is so this myth emerges. okay. And yeah. then um, you know, and let, let's stick to the to the myths and, and the lore before we talk about some of the big games. So what happened? You mentioned that the jug was stolen, lost, misplaced. What's the yeah. myth about it and what's the reality there?
1: Well, sure, it's just so, so and, and maybe there's a lesson here, but so I'll just say, look, we, we've we've heard about like military institutions stealing mascots. And things like that, right? In Ivy League schools and others. You know, it's kind of a, it, it, it kind of gains steam sometimes and it's it's, it's kind of, well, you know, you know, we're, we're going to steal the goat. You Greg, know, we
0: have kind of... an example of Nebraska stealing part of our national championship in 1997. I mean, <laughs> we don't right. have to go to the military academy. <laughs>
1: That's right. But you, you know what I mean. You know, we, we stole the goat and almost killed it and returned it and blah, blah, blah. Well, stealing these trophies because what what you had after the jug was created it got it did get hyped up especially when they played of course and other teams came up with their own little versions of trophies right including the midwest well it it became a thing to steal the trophy not necessarily the other team even just we're gonna steal the trophy we're gonna steal the thing and and we're gonna hold it right from young rap scallions most likely on campus so the jug is just sitting on display in the administration building, which is now the ticket office. If you drive by state street, if you're, if you're local and you look at the buildings, you know, past Jim or hall, if you're going North, it says administration on, on the facade of the building, but it was in there and it disappeared in 1931. I think it was the late summer, right before the football season started. And I think somebody just stole it, just took it. Right. Um, and so what happened was right after that, look, they looked, they had this big search. I mean, this made all the papers. I think this made the East Coast papers, right, that the jug was stolen. Um, and, a, and a jug shows up at what is now the Bear Claw Coffee, if you know Ann Arbor, which is on the corner that where, where Washington Avenue splits with Stadium. There's a, there's a coffee shop. It's like a two-level coffee shop. It used to be a gas station. A jug shows up, but it's freshly painted and it's it's very suspicious, right? And they bring it to Yost and Yost goes, Yeah, that's that's it. He goes, That's that's the one, right? Anywho, the press gets a look at it. Michigan wins the game, so they keep it and tuck it away. They bring it to Minnesota the next year. Everyone's looking at it and go, That doesn't look right, you know? And Michigan unfortunately ties the game and takes it home again. Well, so the next year is 1933. Is it 33 or 34? I forget. But anyway, the next time it's, it's back in Minnesota, I might get my, my years messed up. Oh, it's 33. Um, another jug shows up on campus, a different jug. And Yost confirms it's the real thing. Minnesota wins, I think, in 34. And... Oscar Munson himself the guy who found the original jug now it doesn't look like when he got it had it But Minnesota's had it a couple of times since then he says yeah, this is a real thing. So The myth just in a nutshell was just all screwed up. It was found at a gas station In a clump of bushes. It was gone for four years. The years were wrong They're mixing two stories up the gas station was where the fake one was found The real one was found in a clump of of bushes in 1933 it, it was just all over the place. And why is that? Well, somebody screwed it up and put they put little snippets of information in old programs about it. And, you know, modern day, probably some of our contemporaries not calling anybody out, did some research. And the, the data was wrong because I don't think people cared, Right. Again, it wasn't how many yards Tom Harmon had against Cal they're talking about a jug they just didn't put a lot of effort into it Phil and it was all wrong but it but it, why why did i bother even to look because the athletic department claimed that the jug was missing for 4 years and then suddenly showed up and but without any explanation it didn't make any sense to me how could how come i've never heard more about this right so, uh, so Greg, the story what, was wrong. So Greg
0: yeah. what, what happened? Did a fraternity steal it? Yeah. Did, was it misplaced. I mean, you know, you yeah. know again, I, I was in a fraternity at U of M, you know, as you talk about, there is a culture of stealing things, you know, yeah. we used to steal, uh, you know, uh, displays from sororities and they would have to come sing for it and we would have a party. I mean, what happened to the jug?
1: Yes. So, so was I, we did things like that. Look, my hunch is it is something like that, either a fraternity or um, or a group or some or some guys on campus took it. My hunch is after two years, it got old or the guys were graduating who stole it or whatever. But I think I'm assuming I'm, I'm assuming students and I'm assuming they said, you know what? The joke is a little old now, especially given that. This is a real thing at this point, which is pretty old. I mean, it's 30 years old, right? Um, let's just put it back on campus. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Now, it could have been it could have been someone else in Ann Arbor. I do think it was someone from Ann Arbor, um, but there's still a question though, which is another thing. If we have time, is was did did what was returned? Was it the real jug? And is the jug today, therefore, you know, the same as the 1903 jug? Well, well,
0: Greg, that's one of the questions I have for you is that, you know, when I, when I read the background is, do we have, we have an authentic jug, but do we have the authentic jug?
1: So I'll I'll nutshell it for you, but what, what, so what I did was I I actually got to go inside and and check it out and they allowed me to bring in um, the master potter from the Henry Ford museum. And I, I asked around to to like the Michigan art department and things like that. And they recommended this guy, this guy named Ryan Forey, um, not a Michigan fan, but lived in Ann Arbor at the time. And he, again, he was the master potter at the Henry Ford museum, which, which, which he, he's an expert in pottery coincidentally from this era. Right. And he looked at it. He looked at old photos. We did all that stuff. And one of the things that he spotted, and I give him credit for this, is an old. You can see the outline of an old Minnesota M, a different styled M, that is actually. Um, you can see the same the same style in photos from the twenties. Okay, so what what does that tell me? It's not the complete answer, but what it does tell you is that this jug most likely, right, dates to the twenties at least, and if it dates to the twenties. They only played a few times between then and 1909, right? They didn't play as regularly as they did. They, and, and by the way, Michigan won a lot of those games, so it didn't travel a lot. There's a real high probability that this is a real jug. I, I can't say for sure, um, but the, the I'll tell you the handle, which is a very distinct thing on a jug, even, even from ones that are mass-produced, seems to match up really well, the size of the jug. And there are a couple marks on the jug, that almost look like you can make them out on early versions. So if you had to ask me, I'd probably say yes with an "at." Like, hey, I'm not sure. But there's a lot of evidence to say that it's survived all these years.
0: So what we can say is it's definitely a very old jug, and there is a good probability that it is the jug.
1: Yes, and I will say if it is a replacement for the original, they did a really really good job of finding a jug that matched the original they did a really good job which would like why would they care you know they're not (laughs) they they weren't anticipating greg Dooley in 2020 talking to phil about it or doing this research so they did a really good job if they did so i there's a lot of things to point to that it survived um it, it is an old stoneware jug and you can see white like the white, almost like a whitewash underneath it, which is what one of the early layers of the jug is. It's a whitewash. That's another piece of evidence, right? You could probably x-ray it like they do with old pottery and things like that. And I actually almost had somebody on board to do something like that at one point. It, it kind of fell through, but maybe one of these days we'll take a look or maybe we leave it alone. Maybe that's one legend that we let, we let um, sit there. And, and wonder about it.
0: So I guess the only question I would have is, you know, obviously it's, it is an artifact now, you know, if somebody were to take a, a paint a paint speck from the bottom, you could probably look at the layers. And, and I was wondering about if, if, if the current jug actually had, had white going all the way back. So, you know, to that, I'm looking at the photo of, of the white jug. Okay. And, you know, Greg, I, I know I've told you this story. Um, you know, in addition to being a Michigan alum, um, the the high school that I went to uh, copied the Little Brown Jug, and uh, they've been playing for their version of the Little Brown Jug for over 70 years now. So it was That's always awesome. it was always really cool for me to uh, you know it was a really big deal for our high school Warren Lincoln. We we play the Centerline Panthers for our version of the Little Brown Jug. So it was always cool when I went to Michigan to know that, that we had taken the tradition of our brown jug from Michigan's brown jug. And one of the cool things about our brown jug is it had all the scores in it. And, you know, when you would win it, you'd get a picture of holding the jug with your score. So when did Michigan That's awesome. When did Michigan and Minnesota start putting this, when did it become blue, okay, and on the Michigan side yeah. and, and Minnesota colors on the other side? And when did the scores start being added? And most importantly, what are you going to do when you run out of room for, for scores? What's the sure. plan here for the future?
1: So they, they've always put the score on it. Okay. So they started with the first, that first tie. They painted the 6-6. Then they painted the 1909 and 1910 game on. And then it was in the 20s, the early 20s when they said, you know, this is going to get old because they didn't, they didn't think about a tra- trophy that's going to last till 2020. Right. So, the, then they then they painted the two sides in the very early twenties, um, twenty two or twenty three, maybe a little earlier, but right around there is when you had two sides, um, and a column, right? Then you you they updated, and I think Minnesota actually did this in '29. They updated it to the the what are the block M's and the, and the two M's that you see today, and that's where they painted over presumably the old version of the of the Minnesota block M because they didn't like it um so that that gets us to the to the end of the 20s and then in the early 40s is when they added the two column kind of approach on each side so the, the jug today has four columns of scores it used to have one side had a column then they added another column right and now it's there's four columns which are as you pointed out are completely full in 2013 we ran out of space they painted five new score slots above the block m right the last one will be filled um, on the 24th or thereafter whoever wins the game will fill the last spot okay so the next time we play which i'm not sure is is confirmed i don't know if how firm the 2021 schedule is that the winner of that game will have to decide what to do there is plenty of space below uh, there first of all there's you could put five more scores if you want to keep the current current uh, format above the minnesota m and i'd argue you could put uh, 20 more scores 10 each below each M so you have at least I'd say 26 more scores if you kind of follow where it's going right now to put and I tell you Phil 26 games in a um, with or, or 21 whatever it is 21 21 games between teams that are in different divisions um, that's gonna be a long time yeah right or wrong that's gonna be a long time so there's, there's a lot of space. What do they do then? Well, if you're asking me as a historian, I've heard a lot of people say there is room, other room on, on the jug. They could probably get by, but eventually if the jug survives, they're going to run out of room. I'd recommend they repaint the columns and make them tighter. Some people object to that, but they've done it as a historian. I can tell you we've done that before on the jug. We've repainted the jug times. I would think they just make the scores a lot score uh, smaller and, you know, allow for another 100 years of scores, which you could do today easily.
0: So, Greg, here's a question. Yeah. What happens if Michigan and Minnesota meet in the Big Ten championship game? Is that an official brown jug game or not?
1: To me, if if you if they ask me as the jugologist of the first, you know, 30, 40 years, I would point to the 1926 season where we played – minnesota in the season and then we played them at, at the last game of the season we played them twice and there's a bunch of reasons for that um but we actually played them in fielding you know last game at at michigan the last game in 1926 michigan won both games but both scores are represented on the jug in 1926 so there is there is it's not the same thing but there is a precedent right for for playing um twice in the same year i would say i would argue that that the big 10 championship is absolutely not only for the stag trophy, which I think should be the stag Yost trophy, but it should be for the jug as well.
0: Okay, Greg. So high school, Phil, when he played for the little Brown jug and when I used to help out with my high school team on the coaching staff, we used to have a saying that don't be the, don't be the jerk who dropped the jug. Okay. Yep. So my question is, has what kind of damage has happened to the jug over the years? And, what kind of procedures have been in, have been put in place to repair it and to protect it uh, during the year and and uh, while it's being passed back and forth between the teams?
1: Sure. So so I'm gonna there are rumors that it was broken or the handle was broken before, probably in the 20s, right? But I'm gonna I'm gonna dismiss that for a minute because there's I don't know how much truth there is to it. The only damage that there's been to the jug there's a big chunk out of the bottom which I assume is just a just fell off. There are tons of wear on the handle and then there's a ton of nicks. Now, um, I happen to know the woman who, who paints the score on the jug, a woman named Jill Gordon, she's wonderful. If Michigan wins, right? I know that if she has the opportunity and has the right paint, um, she will touch up some of the Nicks. So that's as close to any repair or anything like that, that we've had. Um, she hasn't touched the handle and anything like that. But if there's a big, like brutal Nick out of there, she will touch it up. Um, but other than that, the jug's in pretty good shape. And as far as holding it, you really need to hold the thing with two hands. You'll see pictures of guys holding a handle. It's just not a good idea. The thing is a hundred, almost 120 years old. Um, you really need to hold it with two hands. Chase Winovich, um, actually was at my lecture at U of M in the history of college athletics. And I urged them, we were talking about the jug. I urged some of the football players that were, happened to be in that class, including chase to hold the thing with two hands. I swear, Phil, he heard me. And despite that, some of you might know the pictures. You can look them up. He ran around that thing like crazy just to get my nerves. So it's personal for me. So hold the thing with two hands and don't just hold on it by, by the handle. One day, this thing will break. Like every glass, it will break. Um, Don't do it on your watch. That's my advice to the captains.
0: So that's one of the reasons I'm skeptical that the handle has been broken, repaired. I have um, seen the jug up close, okay? I've seen it mishandled, as you've mentioned. And I mean, no matter how well it's been repaired, I got to believe that if the handle had been broken, it would have broken again in, in some of the situations I've seen right
1: you're right you're right and what what kind of adhesive that w- presumably would have been used in the in the 20s or 30s would have held up all these years <laughs> it's like there's just no chance right so, so I mean, great let me
0: ask you another question is there anything in the jug
1: um there there is there is there is some something rattling around in there i don't know what it is the the top of it is sealed off um there's a screw up there there used to be like a cork kind of thing and it kind of broke off um if you shake it you do hear something but it's not like a piece of like there's room that someone put a piece of paper in there with a note um you know or there's not like a corn cob you know like you just you can find in some old jugs there's there's just some debris which which i think makes a lot of sense for something that old
0: so a, a funny aside okay when i played for the brown for the high school version of the brown jug our coach lived in the opposing city okay so the running joke we had is that our the deed to our coach's house was in it and if he ever lost he was going to lose his house so i was wondering if uh, you know through the years people have put notes in it going back and forth so i was wondering if there is any equivalent with the michigan jug
1: not so, not as far as i know and again something happened like someone tore the they had a little cap and ribbons and someone ripped that off. I don't know when that happened. Um, But no, there's, there's nothing and no one's drinking out of it. Like the Stanley cup or anything like that. Maybe unfortunately, but probably fortunately, because if they did and the, you know, people were putting beer in it or what have you, um, it probably wouldn't survive too many of those nights.
0: (laughs) So has the jug always been delivered to the team on the field? Uh, Has that changed throughout the years?
1: You know, I don't, that's a good question. Um, the old pictures always have it on the sideline. Like there's, there's pictures in the thirties where in the twenties where it's sitting on the sideline for the press to see, but that could have been an anomaly in the meat. And that could be why they took the picture. Right. Wow. The joke's here. Um, you know, I remember pictures of Woodson carrying it off. And certainly these days, we bring it to the sideline and tuck it away.
0: Woodson, Falk, car- Woodson carrying it by the handle, by the way. <laughs>
1: correct, correct. Yeah, and there's, let's see, um, Minery. There's a good shot of Minnery holding it by the handle, if I recall. But, but Falk Falk always was, was careful. Um, he'll tell you this. To keep the thing tucked away until the very, very end of the game, just because it was such a distraction. Um, because if you put it out, everyone wanted to see it. The media wanted to see it. Um, it just created a little bit of a frenzy, especially, obviously, for the Minnesota game. Um, so Bo, Bo told him to keep that thing in its case until the very end, and he always did. But in, in my lifetime, I think may, maybe what... I mean, Bo's teams were so dominant as no-fill. Um, it's very, very possible that, like, between 1969 and, say... Well, shoot, until, until they nipped us. <laughs> um, we beat them up pretty good. 75 was a little close, but we beat them up pretty good. It's possible they didn't even bother. But um, I'll tell you, Minnesota has beaten us a few times, as you know. We we were sitting next to each other for one of them um, recently, somewhat recently. Um, Hey, i tell you what. They make a big deal out of it, just like State made a big deal out of the, the, the Paul Bunyan trophy. And you know what? Harbaugh with a Paul Bunyan, that was traditionally a locker room trophy. Said, hey, all right, we're gonna
0: we're gonna pull it out then.
1: And you know, I think there was part of that going on with the jug. So well, I know, like seeing it on the sideline. I, I, I worry about it, but I like seeing it out
0: there. Well, you know, Greg, you've been down on the sideline. There's not a lot of room down there. So the last thing you'd want is to have it out and, and somebody knock it over or a player run out of bounds during the game. So I, I think it's good that they're they're careful with it. Um so thinking back, right? So there there have been some huge memorable games. You know, I know for most of the last thirty or forty years, Michigan has had a lock on it. And I know yep. a lot of again, this is where why we really want to talk about the history of it because there are many current fans who kind of just you know, I'm sure take the jug for granted, right? It's one of those things we beat Minnesota all the time and it's not a big deal, but you know, it's interesting to think back to that, you know, to those initial games. Um, What about the game in the, in the forties with Tom Harmon? That was a a huge monumental game that, that I don't think a lot of people are aware of.
1: Yeah. It's, there's a couple, couple few, someone, someone Bo would argue Bo had a couple of these teams, right? Like they had everything, (laughs) And the 1940 Michigan team had everything, including basically a, you know, U.S. uh, celebrity, right? And the great, by far the best player in the country, arguably the best player since Red Grange in Tom Harmon. And we had just a fantastic team, and we were whipping people. Going coast to coast, we went. We started off with Cal, you know, and we went to the East Coast and crushed teams and beat Penn, and beat all these great teams. And we played, with, which was was a great Minnesota team. It'd be like, I don't know. I think they had four or five national championships at that point. Probably had four. Eight. Um, but anyway. They had claimed a bunch of national championships. They were a powerhouse team. They were very highly ranked, but Michigan clearly had the better team. We went in there in sloppy conditions, lost, and had had the ball in, in the red zone several times. It just couldn't score, we lost seven to six. And while Tom Harmon's name, you know, has endured, um, that loss really kept us from one of what would be our 12th national championship. Of course, if you, if you count the rest from there and you know, that team probably has a fun nickname, you know, the mad magicians were the next team. They probably have a nickname. We all probably know how to talk about that team. Oh, Tommy Harmon and the 1940s. They probably, they absolutely deserved the win. They had the best team and they just didn't get it done. And that's happened in Michigan a few times, unfortunately. So, that's stung, but Minnesota did that to us. They they took away a national championship from Michigan.
0: Yep, and uh, man, we we would love to be talking about a national championship these days. Um, you know, one of the big games that I think back to was the Bow team that that lost to Tony Dungy and the Gophers. Yeah, um, that's yeah. the one that that I remember. Um, you know, being a a young Wolverine fan, and and again, just assuming that. Oh, Michigan's gonna win, and to uh, that's the first time that I remember the name Tony Dungy, and of course, you know he went on, he has gone on to be a to have a great coaching career, but that's how that's how I remember him.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, and shoot, and they they beat they beat Jimmy Harbaugh right in '86. Um, that really stunned before his guarantee. I think I think and and when we beat Ohio State, but man, that that was a great team. Um, man. Um, that was our first loss of the season, 17 to 20. Um, and of course at home, right. What, what a brutal loss. When I think that was a Ricky foggy game. I mean, brutal, brutal. I mean, they, they've laid some blows on us. Like Indiana's come close. Right. But they haven't, they haven't landed the punch, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean, Phil, but Minnesota's landed a few on us.
0: I remember, I, I think back to the 2005 game, right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was still working with uh, the high school football team that, you know, we were playing for our version of the Brown Jug, and I brought some football, some of my, our football players to the game, and in the closing minutes, Minnesota won. They, they uh, ran around the end, had a long run, and ended up beating Michigan 23-20. to
1: I'll never forget that.
0: And I remember sitting there going, wait, this isn't how this is supposed to end, and yeah. it, was, it was really shocking.
1: Yeah, no, and, and we, we've had a few, right? Like, like, you could argue we stole that. I think it was the 2003 game, the big comeback, right? And we, we had the Tyler Ecker, I think, over the middle, like, a play that probably should be talked about a little more, basically, to win the game. We've had a few where we've gotten by. And, and you know, and frankly, if you want to go back in history, I talk about 1940. I mean, we each buy a couple wins in 31 and 32, and we claim, sorry, 32 and 33 we actually tied, but those are two of our national championships, right, where we just barely eat by, or in this case, tied in 33. So we, we've inflicted plenty on Minnesota, but again, they, they've bitten back, and you know, I mentioned that 1940 year, I mean, they, they beat us from 1934 um, to 1942. They beat us nine straight years, and Again, the Buckeyes are having their way right now, but even they haven't beat us nine straight years yet. Um, that's that's pretty brutal.
0: You know, it's interesting to look at the scores back then, right? They just didn't beat us. They beat us. I mean, you know, 34 to nothing, 40 to nothing, 26 to nothing, yeah. 39 to 6. Ouch. You know, well, it, it kind it, of tightens up, but, man, the, they, they really put a whipping on us.
1: Well, it does. And and you can kind of set your watch. If you look at that, that's really the downfall of Harry Kipke from 34 to 37. And what what you have is that's when Chrysler arrived in 38. And that's when things tightened up. and We finally, but it took us all the time. And I mentioned 1940, right? Not only did did they beat us to, to prevent a national championship, Uh, we didn't win anything because we didn't, we didn't get, they won the conference championship too. So they took everything from us. So Harmon, Harmon doesn't have a big 10 championship. So despite arguably worthy of the Heisman for two seasons, um, one in 40, probably could have won it in 39 over Niall Kinnick. If you can make an argument, he doesn't have a, it's kind of like the fab five, you know, they don't have a, really don't have a trophy. Everyone remembers them, but they don't, they don't have a championship, you know? And I and I I should say one great memory for me is in modern history is the Nick Sheridan game in 2008, where Nick Sheridan uh, uh, morphed into Tom Brady and we beat him twenty nine to six. And he had he just he just played amazing. And and I'll tell you the reason that other than the fact that it was it was kind of a remarkable performance for a guy who everyone was pretty down on. Um, that really enabled me to do the research the next year because <laughs> we had the jug and that was the 100th anniversary of the 2009 year was the 100th year we didn't play them but that was the 100th anniversary of when we first played for the jug in 1909 and that's what really kind of kick-started my research and had the jug not been in Ann Arbor I can tell you I wouldn't have done it now that's that's a personal story but um, it did. It did allow me kind of some of the leeway to go in there and check the jug out, and show it to people, and take a bunch of pictures and do all the stuff I did. I'll, I'll always remember that game for that.
0: Well, I what I remember about that season is that, as you said, uh, you know Nick Sheridan's a, a local kid, right? Um, you know, played high school ball here uh, in Celine and yep. he okay. And let's be honest, a great guy but he was destined to hold a clipboard, right, in, in most yep. teams. And, and, and is. And, and, and the thing about it was, <laughs> you know, he came onto that team and basically got put into an offense that was not suited for him and just took a beating, right? Yeah. And what I remember about that, that Minnesota win was, now obviously that was not a great Wolverine team, But I remember thinking that that's kind of like that was his champions game, right? That was the game where I think that was kind of the the payoff for him. All the work that he put in, the beating that he took, the grief that he took from fans and and people, and he just put it all together. And and as you said, had a a Tom Brady-like game. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I always tell people, you know, they say, well, what's what's it like being able to cover the team the way you and I do, right? To be up close to it. And, um, you know, one of the things I always tell people is, first, what I've learned is nobody cares more than the players and the coaches, okay? When you see it up close, you realize the blood, sweat, and tears they put in and that nobody cares. Nobody cares as much as they do, okay? Okay. And the thing that I really feel, and, and this is uh, as I get older, as we get older, you know, we're, we're contemporaries, right? I really feel for the players, right? I feel for that, you know, they haven't been to a Rose Bowl in, in 15 years. I feel that they haven't won a national championship. So when you see a, a guy like Nick Sheridan just put it all together and have a great game, you really feel good for him, right?
1: yeah. Yeah, no, you you got it spot on. There's no doubt about that. And Frank and I think Michigan fans have a sense for this, but we're not all exactly rational, calm people. And you see that play out in Twitter. But you can imagine back then with the emails and the calls and the harassments, it's brutal. And and by the way, I I've seen it, felt it. I mean, Nick Nick played at Celine. That's where I live, right? You're you're close to Celine, right, Phil? And yep. You know, co- there's a lot of assistant coaches who who have lived and lived in Saline, and their kids go to school, and they get crap at school, and you you do see that side of it, and how much how hard these guys are working, and by the way, for a lot of these guys, this is their job. I mean, Nick Sheridan's a coach today. Um, this is this is their life. With it's real, and uh, you do get that 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 sense of it when you when you see it up close, and yeah, it is it is um and it does change your view of it. It changes how you are a fan to see it. Like we see it for sure. Right or wrong. I mean, it is, I think maybe we knew that going in or we certainly haven't stopped. Um, It has changed my perspective. And when I hear people say things, I, I do think a little different from based on my experience being so close.
0: Well, Greg, I want to thank you for your time. Really appreciated it. Uh, You know, I, I, I hope that we will see each other once again in a press box someday. Uh, you know, this, uh, this COVID thing has really, uh, you know, put a, put a damper on on uh, our access. But, you know, going to keep loving Michigan and, uh, you know, want to thank you. So um, I want to thank Greg and uh, going to close out this edition of the UMGoBlue.com podcast. Go Blue. Go Blue.